how to start well you know it's just writing i mean here's something important to remember about dialogue every word matters no it doesn't they're vital i want to go to this place that i think it needs to go to the only thing that counts is what you see on the screen i will write like four or five six hours a day and it will be a voice made of ink and rage okay i'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question Welcome to the show. In this episode, I sat down with Rich Cohen. He's the writer of When the Game Was Won, The Chicago Cubs, Story of a Curse, The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, The Fish That Ate the Whale, The Life and Times of America's Banana King, and many more. He's written over like a dozen books right now, including his newest book, The Adventures of Herbie Cohen about his dad and When the Game Was Won, the NBA's greatest season, somewhat about the Chicago Bulls, among other teams. Uh, Cohen is one of my favorite writers. I reached out because I really just, I love his work. I love his style, the way he thinks about things. He's definitely a master who really enjoys writing. He's not afraid to write 30, 40, 50,000 words and scrap them if it doesn't fit the greater purpose of the book. Uh, so really enjoy his work. If you haven't read it, go check him out. But before I get into the interview, I want to reintroduce my podcast producer, Marian Munaz. Marian edits these, she schedules these, she does so much work behind the scenes for us. What kind of stood out to you about this interview with Rich Cohen? It's funny because I don't really like sports and he talks a lot about sports in the interview, but he's really good at selling his books because he wasn't even trying to sell me his books, but I actually thought they were really interesting. I want to check out the one he wrote about being a hockey parent. Yeah. Um, but he talks about his writing process and there's like at some point in the, in the, the podcast where he talks about um how when you're not writing you kind of freak out about how you're going to write stuff and then he just says you know like the only way to start figuring out what you're going to write or how you're going to write it is just writing it like just getting into the zone and just get immersed in the subject and it really brought me back to the podcast episode we did with brooks elms when he just talks about you have to get into the into the mindset you have to like just start writing and stop thinking about how writing is going to be or if it's scary if writing is scary like you just need to sit down and, and start writing yeah, it's definitely about like taking action being prolific getting words on the page and then filtering those words out and seeing what you have left a lot of people think that they're just going to kind of churn out this like perfect sentence, perfect paragraph, perfect chapter. And that's like never the case. And that mindset is what stalls most people. I talked a lot about that in my first book, Ink by the Barrel, Secrets from Prolific Writers, which everyone can go pick up now for free. That's the book and audiobook over at brockswinston.com. Rich Cohen, among others, was definitely a big influence on, on the writing process for me. I love everything he has to say about writing. So without uh, further ado, here is my conversation with, with Rich Cohen and about talking about his dad and the writing process and just getting to it and taking action. So here's that conversation right now. You know, whenever you think about something backwards, it makes perfect sense. It's like doing a maze backwards. So I always kind of wanted to be a writer, but I also wanted to be several other things that I'm not. So um, I just was like to tell stories. I'm the youngest in my family. You had to tell entertaining stories to sort of hold people's attention, you know, and then um, after college, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I got a job at the New Yorker magazine just by a fluke in the in the as a messenger. 
carrying packages around New York City, which was new to me. And I started reading the New Yorker's old nonfiction because I spent a lot of time sitting at the reception desk and go back and read these stories about New York, which I was just getting to know, published in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s. And I just kind of fell in love with the whole idea of the reporter as the person, like a detective out discovering the world and coming upon strange stories and bringing them back and relating them. And I sort of, that happened when I was in my early twenties and I've still been riding that wave ever since. Do you see like looking back in your career, do you see like a point of focus? I mean, you've got some sports books, some like, you know, capitalism or business books. Um, how, what do you, how do you kind of navigate to like what's next? Well, my probably I'd be more successful and have more readers if I picked one topic and stuck to it. But the problem is I just get kind of bored. I mean, I, I kind of want to move on to other things all the time. I, I have a crazy attention span where I go from thing to thing to thing. So it's whatever story catches my attention and I'm really interested in. And sometimes story leads to story. But basically, the only thing connecting them is me, the sensibility, and some few themes that keep recurring because they're part of my personality. That's it. So something appeals to me for one reason or another. Often it's, you know, the stories that we grew up around, where they come from, how they started, what the origin is, and the chance to write about people that I admire and to try to understand how things work. That's basically all that connects what I do. Is it generally like an idea you're focused on? So when I read your book on the Cubs, this this idea, maybe towards the end of the book, it's something like everyone focuses on one year of baseball. That's why they can't make a giant transition. Uh -huh. An idea like that where you start? Or do you remember the origin of that book? Well, with the Cubs, it's like I grew up, you know, North Shore outside of Chicago as a big Cubs fan. And if you grew up there and you're a Cubs fan, it's like a religion. I mean, it's your whole life. So I and it's like I was a history major in college. I'm interested in history. And to me, it all starts with history of the Cubs, history of sports. So I just became fascinated in the old Cubs, you know, the, the mythology of the league. I was really into the old uniforms, the old stadiums, the old architecture, the old players, how, you know, some of these players played so long, they span different eras. And to me, that's what's really like super rich material to research and um, interesting. And what's more fun than giving your, yourself a work assignment where your job consists of basically going to a lot of baseball games, ultimately to the World Series, which unimaginable. Like when the Cubs were in the World Series, I didn't even realize it was game seven. I just couldn't believe that they were in the World Series. It was like the Cubs never made it to the World Series since 1945. And, you know, so, but um, so that's just a deep, deep resounding interest. And I've been writing about the Cubs all the time throughout my whole entire career. So I wrote a book about the 85 bears mm -hmm. and I have a whole section about the bears, which is you can only understand the joy of the 85 bears by understanding Cubs fans. Cause we were the same people, a lot of us. I mean, some white Sox fans, obviously, but um, the idea that the 85 bears was the ultimate revenge for the Cubs fan, you know? So, uh, uh, and then when they finally started to put together a good team, what was obviously a really good team, and wasn't just going to get hot and win, but was going to win because they were good. Uh, I realized it was a huge Titanic shift was going on. Probably when they hired Theo Epstein, who'd done, you know, in Boston, turned the Red Sox around. So I was sort of on that beat. And then I wanted to write a book, not just about the season, but about the whole history of the curse. Because I'm somebody who doesn't, I'm not a superstitious person. I don't believe, I'm not a 
I'm not a pagan, you know. I don't believe in curses and amulets and all that. But if you look at the history of the Cubs, uh, it kind of makes you believe in curses, you know. So I wanted to sort of tell the history of the Cubs as the history of the curse and the breaking of the curse. Is that where you start with the parameter, you would say? Like your new book, too, when the game was war, it's based on the 87 season. Um, is that, does that help you with just the writing? Do you think about the marketing at all? Or is that some, you know, how do you think? No, about I don't that? think about the marketing. I mean, usually I start with a story and then the general things come out of the story. Like you start with the individual thing and then... You don't start with, I have this idea and I want to find the people to demonstrate it. You know what I mean? Mm. You know, like, I don't have this big idea like Malcolm Gladwell. I have this big idea about if you're born early in the year, you're going to have a better chance at making and the NHL. And now I'll go find examples. I would start because I was interested in, let's say, Rocket yeah. Richard, you know, and then I'd say, well, what about Rocket Richard is in common? And then you start to notice these patterns. So it's a backwards way. I mean, that's how I do things. Now with the with the new book, um, the difference is that I had I had this dream since I was a kid of writing a book. I was a big I played sports, but I was a bigger fan than I was a player, you know, and not just of going to the games, but like I said, the statistics, the mythology. And um the sport I actually played was hockey, so mostly. So I had an idea ultimately of writing a book about all four major sports in America, what I consider the major sports from the point of view of a Chicago fan. And I and I done that with Monsters about the 85 Bears, the book about the Cubs, which is really about the whole history of the franchise and the curse. When it came to hockey, I didn't really want to write about the NHL. I wrote about the life of a hockey parent because my kid plays hockey and I deal with the crazy parents. And um, and basketball, I was thinking I'd write about the Bulls, but ultimately I realized you couldn't really understand the Bulls without understanding all the other teams that they played. And this is what made it interesting to me, similar to like I was a history major, like I said. So if you wanted to study how the United States became like it was when I was a kid in the 70s and the 80s, you had to understand the history, you had to understand the Soviet Union because we were reacting to the Soviet Union. We had this huge army because of the Soviet Union and understand the Soviet Union, you had to understand World War II and to understand World War II, you had to understand World War I. And the more that I looked at the bulls, I realized it was the same process hmm. in miniature. So to understand why the Bulls became the team they were, you had to understand the Detroit Pistons, who became were the bad boys and the tough team. And the Bulls had to build to get past that one team. But then to understand the Pistons, who were demonized, you have to understand the Celtics. Because the Pistons only became they were because they couldn't get by the Celtics, who had this giant front line. And to understand the Celtics, you had to understand the 76ers, because they had to get by the 76ers. And you realize that all these are things reacting to each other and you just experience it as a snapshot in time, one season. So my idea was to tell the story about these four teams, which were all dynasties. I argue that 87, 88 was the greatest season because there were four dynasties, great historic dynasties in existence the same year, all in different states of their lifespan. Mm -hmm. So I'd say the team that won that year was the LA Lakers, which was the Showtime, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And they were one of the greatest teams ever, whatever they won the... They, uh, you know, won the back-to-back -back and everything else. And, um, and but they were already not the best team. I'd say they were like five minutes past midnight. You know, the best team, even though they didn't win, was the, were the Pistons. Mm. And no one realized it yet. But if you're looking back, you can see that's the best team in basketball. And they had to beat the Celtics. So they finally got by that year. And the Celtics were like 
already on the wane, but they were still dangerous and still great. And the team that was sort of the nascent team, the, the future of the game was going to be the Bulls, who that year, it was a rookie year of Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant. And John Paxson, by the end of the season, just started to start a point guard. And Jordan won the MVP. So it was like the team was there. Mm-hmm. And they just hadn't put it together yet. So to me, when I was thinking of this book, I thought of it as kind of Game of Thrones, you know. So instead, of, you have these four dynasties. Everyone's fighting for the same throne. And instead of thinking, instead of having one team and writing about them, you could have four main characters and then actually see them go head to head in war and in competition. And one thing that jumped out from the game when I was a kid is that the game was much more physical and much more violent. And the violence was sort of the, 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 the wood chipper of the league was part of it. Like it was in, more like the NHL is now. The, the NBA playoffs then were like an endurance test. Like who could stand more punishment and continue on to the end? And that team would often be the winner. And it sounds like that would take years. You've got a lot of books under your belt. Like what does that time frame look like for all the, from start to finish? It took, I mean, I, I never, I just go, see, I don't really live on a normal calendar. I have kids in school. So now I'm back on their school calendar, but basically um, it probably took three years or something. You know, it took a long time, but the good thing about this book as compared to some other things I've written is everything's available. So you can watch all the games, all the playoff games. You can watch, you can read all the daily coverage. And the guys who wrote the daily coverage are still around. So you could talk to them. And I'm talking about the beat reporters for the Detroit Free Press and the Chicago Sun-Times and the LA Times and the Boston Globe. And you can talk to a lot of the players, you know. So it's just a big, big task. But, you know, going back to Malcolm Gladwell, I don't know if you know that book. His, yeah outliers Mm -hmm. so he said that you got to practice ten thousand hours to be great or whatever but what he doesn't say which is true which i know is that if you're really into something the ten thousand hours of practice they don't feel like practice yeah they feel like fun you know you're out there shooting baskets in the driveway or shooting a puck against the garage it doesn't feel like you're practicing i guess you are you know those are part of the ten thousand hours same with the book like this one of the reasons why i like to do it is because it doesn't feel like work. It just feels like watching these great old basketball games and trying to understand what was really going on from a perspective of whatever it is, however many years, many years later. I'm not even sure I have to count. Long time ago. So some of, <laughs> so some of those we've talked about, like you're, you're finding, I'm assuming you're finding the creative constraints somewhat early in the outlining process. Where is it different where, for example, like your dad's book or like when you talk, when you wrote the book with Jerry Wintraub, like I interviewed Jonathan Eag, who wrote the big book on Muhammad Ali. Yeah. He wants to put everything in there. Do you see yourself as more of like a memoirist where you're like trying to find focal points? Like, how do you think about those as opposed to well, if you're speaking just from like a writing point of view? Yeah. There was uh, first of all, it's a book like the basketball book, a huge thing and as much part of it as anything was the figuring out the structure. So I, it's like, there's a Hemingway quote where he says, writing isn't interior decoration, it's architecture. You know, so the architecture of this book was hugely important and I, and I figured it out. It was like, everything fell into place. And it's like no book I've ever, it's got a different structure than anything I've ever written. So it felt new, which was, you know, it broke down to four teams, four players. And rather than trying to, write about the whole entire season. I just wrote about four games, Mm -hmm. four games. 
and then use the four games within the four games to do uh, what it flashbacks, background. So by the end of each game, you know the entire story of that team and the next team. And then so a team in, in part one, if it's a game between the Pistons and the Bulls, let's say, and I'm writing about the Pistons, the Pistons are in the foreground, but their opponent, the Bulls, are in the background. But in the next chapter, the Bulls are in the background. The Bulls, uh, the Pistons are in the background and the Bulls are in the foreground. So like I was always a huge fan of movies like Pulp Fiction, where you see the same characters again, but now they're kind of extras, yeah. but they're still in the scene. And by, I wanted to do that. And by the time you get to the end, you know every character in the book. So that was about structure and fitting it into that structure. And there's a great quote by Tina Brown, I always think of, was the editor of The New Yorker, who called the first draft the vomit draft. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, and I don't think anybody cuts more than I cut. <laughs> so the first draft might be, seriously, like 130,000 words. I write every single thing I can think of. And then by the time I am ready to show it to an editor, it's more like 75,000 words. So for every word I write, I probably cut a word. Now, when you're actually writing, it's good to forget about that or decide it's going to be different this time. Otherwise, you realize you're actually spending days writing something that you're then going to cut. Mm -hmm. But I think that's you know part of the process. You get to the good stuff by having the bad stuff. You can't get to the good stuff if you don't have the bad stuff, if that makes sense. So the answer might just be that you just enjoy it, but I, I work with some like writing students who are just having trouble finishing their first book or something like that. Um, anything about separating the writer mind from the editor mind? Because I think that stops people from like, yeah, well, that's what I'm page. talking about. It's like, yeah. first of all, if you want to get past that problem, there's two tricks I would say. One is what I do is just write a certain number of words a day and don't worry if they're good or bad, just make a map and follow it. And I always liken it to driving from New York to LA. If you ever taken a long road trip like that, you know that the key is just to go travel miles every day. And if you do that, you'll eventually get there. It might take, if you go slow, it'll take you longer, but you will get there. What you don't want to do is stop and think. You just want to keep going. That's the first draft. And that's what, that's why you can go back and cut half of it, you know? And then second of all, don't worry if it's good or bad. That's something for later. Mm -hmm. Don't try to make it perfect or great. Just get it out. And whether it's good or bad, it's not your business on the first draft. If that makes sense. Yeah. Are there some examples where you went pretty far down the rabbit hole and then decided to scrap a project? And I'm wondering what made you make that decision? Well, usually by the time I'm actually ready to write a book, I... I there are things that that happens with that I never pursue a lot of things or sometimes I start doing something like my book that I wrote about the last pirate in New York about this early New York gangster. I try to write it as a novel. Hmm. I tried to write it. I, it's like when, by the time it worked, it was the third attempt and it was after, you know, from the first time to the third time, 20 years might've gone by, <laughs> but I just still was super interested in that story. I can never shake that story. And it just, it didn't work. And then it didn't work. I had to get older. I had to get better at researching, you know, a lot of things had to happen. So yeah, that happens. And then the other thing is sometimes I go very far down the rabbit hole within a manuscript. Mm -hmm. So like even in this Bulls book or the, I shouldn't call it the Bulls book, the NBA book, when the game was war, I had a whole long thing about the slam dunk competition that year. Mm -hmm. And because it was Jordan versus Dominique Wilkins. And I spoke to Dominique Wilkins and he gave me all this great stuff. And 
the dunk is a real interesting history. And it was like 30,000 words on the history of the slam dunk. Now, I know somebody's writing a book just on that, and it could be just a book, you yeah. know, but ultimately it didn't fit this book. So I cut it. Hmm. So that someday, maybe I'll do something with that someday, not. But if you want to call that a rabbit hole, I guess it's a rabbit hole, but it was an entertaining rabbit hole. Yeah. Are there, uh, so I read your, I read your book, the, I'm just going to summarize it to the, the banana King book. Yeah. There's a lot in there. That's something like he, um, I think it's like they're building the the train tracks in the Amazon and the line is something about like he fed three of his brothers to the forest or something uh -huh. like that. That's like stuck with me. So I write films too. And that is like stuck with me as like such a deep character thought. I'm wondering if when you're, when you're going back and maybe in your second or third or whatever draft it would be, are there lines you really toll over or spend a ton of time on? What are those like? What's the difference in that mindset? Well, usually for me, I figure out what I want to say by writing. So it's not like I have a line like that planned. It just comes up in my chain of thought while I'm writing. And I think that probably there's a neurological reason, which is like the part of your brain that is involved in writing that you access when writing mm. is different than the part of the brain you're walking around with and talking to people with so you access this deeper part of your brain and that's why writing becomes like you have to write to know what you think kind of and that's why when you're not writing you can kind of freak out like how am I going to do this the only way to do it is to sit down and do it because it's a different person writing almost mm -hmm. if that makes sense and and I guess lines like that that if they work they come from some deep part of your subconscious or whatever part of your that you've prepared for by reading and thinking and dreaming and get completely immersed in a subject and then they're just there and it's kind of like magic so I you don't know really where they come from because you didn't consciously think of them um there are times of course like usually if I have a line like that or a line that's good or something sometimes you work for a long time on the exact right wording mm -hmm. because early on in my life uh, I wanted to kind of take the stories I told and turn them into written stories. And I realized that you can't just take a story that you tell that's funny and write it down and it'll be funny. It won't be funny because writing isn't just an act of transcription. It really is an act of translation. Mm -hmm. And so much of it depends on the timing of the words and the way the sentence unfolds. It's the key. So that's the kind of thing you wind up working on over and over and over again. I had this really, I remember spending like a whole day working on one sentence in one of my books and it was driving me crazy you know and i realized that the, the joke of this is if it works if i get it right person reading it will never even notice it <laughs> that means it's work just go right over it so it's kind of like if you spent like 24 hours on a highway crew working on one little buckle in the road and ideally no one's going to ever know you were there you know that's the no one will ever there will be no monument to your work the monument is it's invisible yeah. so it's kind of interesting you, you drive yourself nuts if you think too deeply about it yeah, I think that's the, I've heard Seinfeld talk about joke structure in a very similar manner. Yeah. <laughs> what what was different about, um, so the adventures of Herbie Cohen's about your father. I spoke with the guy named Timothy Bogart who wrote about his dad, Neil, who started Casablanca Records. He discovered Kiss. So there's a combination of truth. And obviously you want to tell that story, but also it's a personal story. He rewrote this thing for 20 years. Where did you begin to tell this story about your dad? How much of it is outside perspective, inside perspective? How did you start to think about those things? Well, I sort of always, my father's a very vivid character, strong philosophy of life, 
very funny and very contradictory in his behavior. So it makes for a lot of wisdom and a lot of comedy. So I've always told stories about my father. When I said translating, some of the stories I would just try to write down were stories about my father. So um, I've always written stories about him. So my first book, the whole first chapter is about him. That's whatever, 30 years ago, not 30 years ago, but like almost 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And um, he appears in most of my books. The beginning of the basketball book is playing basketball with him because he was a basketball coach and has very rigid ideas about his version of basketball. So um, it's like picking up a story I've been telling. And in this case, sometimes telling again stories that I've told before and feeling like you get another chance to write them. And you don't want to ever say, I've written this and I'm never going to write it again, because that's like you're done with it. And you don't want to be done with it, because when you're writing about it, you're like living it again. So I end up retelling some of these stories. And um, the thing is, you sort of step back. He's like 90 years old now. So there's, you can see more of his life as a whole thing, you know? So it gives you a new perspective. And, um, so it's basically for me, that's a unique story because I think that he's the story beneath all my other stories. It's like a code for everything I write. And um, it's a chance to pick up a conversation I've been having with myself and with my siblings since I was a little kid. So it never really begins and it never really ends, if that makes sense. Was there, um, was that the main reason for the timing? Maybe thinking about your dad getting older, like some people, this might've been your first book trying to write about your dad to get notoriety kind of in your own right that way. Like is anything else situationally about why? Well, what happened is actually, what actually happened is a friend of mine is an editor, became an editor at Audible. And he asked me to write a short piece about something. And he said, why don't you write about your father? Because he knew he'd heard me tell these stories. And I didn't know how to do it, like, for all the reasons we're talking about. I had a, you know, it was so, and once I started writing it, it was so fun and came so naturally. And it was like this, I was, feel like I was ready to tell these stories in the right way that his thing was short. And I went to my editor and said, I want to write, turn this, I want to write a book about this because I don't want to be writing about anything else right now. That's all I want to write. So that's how it happened. So the timing was just because. I was prodded and then I realized that there was like gold there. That makes sense. I hit a vein. I felt like. What's your relationship like with your editor now? You mean you have plenty of books out, bestsellers. Um, is there still some like back and forth or when he, when you come to him and you feel this convinced he like they're on board, how does, how does that work? Well, I mean, I'm happy to say that every book I've written has been, you know, my idea and something I wanted to do. And, but, you know, it's still, you still have to justify it because I'm a, a working writer. I'm not, I'm not a rich person. So I have to support myself and my family with my writing, which means they have to give me a certain amount of money so I can live long enough to finish the book. And because of that, they then have to go to their salespeople and justify the amount of money they're going to give me. So it becomes a compromise. Hmm. So... Sometimes an idea seems more commercial. Sometimes I'm willing to take less money than I probably should because I really, really like an idea, you know, and all the, and all this stuff. So it's a negotiation to go back to my father. I would say it's some sort of middle ground between I want to do and what they want, what they want me to do for their own economic health. And I think that uh, they also know that if it's something my editor knows that if it's something that I'm really enthusiastic about, 
it's probably going to be a better book. Mm. So there's that too. And um, uh, basically, sometimes I want to do something and it doesn't work out for one reason or another. And usually if it's an idea I really care about, it always comes back. But sometime in the future, I'll write it somewhere. You know, these ideas, they, they don't go away. They just kind of linger. I always think of Huckleberry Finn because I know that he wrote, you know that story? Mm. Mark Twain wrote the first chapter of Huckleberry Finn right after Tom Sawyer was a huge bestseller. And then he didn't know what to do with it. And he put it in a drawer. And like 30 years later, he found the first chapter and he thought, this is really good. And then he wrote the rest of the book. So he'd abandoned and then recovered that idea. It's probably, you know, the greatest novel in the history of America. So one thing I saw an interview you did, MSNBC, I think you said your dad's approach was basically like life is a game. Um, is that something you try to implement? I think you've kind of said the word curiosity. Do you see it in the same way? Do you have a different philosophy about life? No, I, I see it exactly the same way. The problem is I was born with a different sensibility. Hmm. As I get older, it gets easier but I kind of more emotionally engaged. His whole thing is you got to care, but not that much. And look at it as a game and realize in the big scheme of things, none of this, none of the things you care about is, are really that important. Which is how he deals with me when I was a kid all the time. That's really not that important. That's bullshit, who cares, you know? So that's the thing. And if you play, it's like playing a game. If you play loose, like you don't care, like you're playing with house money, hmm. you know? then you're, you're going to be more successful. You're going to play better. You're not going to make the same kind of mistake. So ultimately it is a uh, strategy for winning, you know, but it's also, he'd say a way to live a better life and not be so up and down, up and down. And I really tried to live that way. And, uh, but the problem is I have my father's philosophy, but my mother's sensibility. So more my mother's son than my father's son. And my mother did get very emotionally invested in, would you know get upset about things so it's a constant struggle the human condition i think they call it it almost seems like the the stoic philosophy that's now came back so in the forefront now um what's anything that surprised you writing this book that you didn't know about your dad or a unique story that stood out well one thing that surprised that was interesting to me was when you go back and look at his life through his philosophy you realize that each part of his life uh he was kind of getting lessons and training and learning these things. So him growing up as part of this like kind of street gang, sort of so-called street gang in Brooklyn called the Warriors, he was involved in all kinds of negotiations on the street with kids. And all that stuff winds up in his work. And he's a professional negotiator. He worked for the State Department and the CIA and the FBI and these hostage negotiations. But the joke was always like, now people go to Harvard and all this stuff to study that. His school was Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. And all the stuff he did, he just learned on the street and then applied it to the larger world because people are the same no matter where you meet them. And when I come across guys like Sam Zamuri, the banana book, or Jerry Weintraub, who's a Hollywood producer, and see them doing things that are very much my father's philosophy prepared me for because they're all doing the same things, you know, about lowering expectations, controlling deadlines, lowering the price, coaching it like a game not getting attached to one particular outcome, be willing to accept something that you didn't expect that might even turn out to be better. These are all things that successful people and good negotiators do naturally. What he did is he kind of reverse engineered it and figured out the code. So we're almost out of time. A lot of writers 
wants a right, maybe want a career like yours, but they have those same sensibilities or doubts or whatever. Any advice for those writers who are maybe young writers kind of debating writing full or trying to write full time? Um, well, basically just to read and write as much as possible. And at some point, probably it's best to just go ahead and try to do it and just do it and need to be, it's like sort of having to make money is a great, you know, motivator and it will cause you to be successful and to keep pushing and to not let your vanity get involved and not be worried about looking stupid and just put yourself out there as much as possible and read as much as possible and don't compare yourself to the stuff that's immortal and great compare yourself to the stuff that's actually out in the world which a lot of it is mediocre and not good thanks so much for tuning into the show before you take off i want to give you a free gift i'm giving you my first book ink by the barrel for free that's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.